The Apostle James wrote, Take, my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And we notice how that James connects the prophets, including Jeremiah, who perhaps of all the prophets suffered most of all, and Job. It's quite noticeable when you go to Jeremiah 20, don't do it now, but check it out for yourself sometime, that Jeremiah, in the depths of his grief, quotes Job word for word from Job chapter 3. Because he identified with the sufferings of Job very much. And James puts them together, the, the prophets and Job going through a common grief, a sense of great injustice. And both of those characters, Jeremiah and Job, teach us much about patiently enduring unexpected suffering. Jeremiah's sufferings only intensified as he approached the end of his 40-year ministry. During that 40 years, his heart had been broken time and time again, and especially by the influence of the false prophets, who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. He said, my heart is broken because of the false prophets. He broke his heart over vacillating weak kings like Zedekiah, over evil kings like Jehoiakim, and by the attempts of evil men to eliminate him and silence him. Even his hometown of Anathoth sought his life. And he was constantly in fear of imprisonment, of beatings, of being mocked in the stocks, and of being hounded and persecuted by the various kings. Before Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah suffered cruel imprisonments, solitary confinement, starvation, finally culminating in the horrible experience in the miry pit in the court of the king which was a death sentence, determined that he would die slowly as the waters rose up around him and he sank in the mire. A horrendous experience that impacted upon his mind. You've only got to read Lamentations chapter 3 to see what he felt as he suffered in the miry pit. And when the city finally fell in the 11th year of Zedekiah, he was clapped in chains and marched up to Ramah. An old man, tired, deprived of sleep, deprived of, of food, was marched with all the captives in the general confusion to Ramah. And the Babylonian generals were frantic. They looked for him everywhere because they had instructions from Nebuchadnezzar that of all the people in Jerusalem, Jeremiah had to be, be, be preserved alive. And they desperately sought to find Jeremiah. Now that was likely the influence of Daniel upon the, on the Babylonian king, that Jeremiah had to be found and looked after. And finally they found him at Ramah, when he should have been in Jerusalem. He was immediately granted his freedom to, do, to go wherever he wanted to go. They were under very strict orders that, he, that Jeremiah was to have exact freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. But he was in a terrible physical and mental state by this time. You know, the record beautifully says in chapter 39 and verse 14, Gedaliah carried him home, back to Jerusalem. He had to be carried by the lovely man Gedaliah, who's a, a wonderful person. Gedaliah carried him home. And he went back to Jerusalem and sat in the ruins of <coughs> Jerusalem. And about this time, he suffered what I believe was a total emotional collapse. And the book of Lamentations reflects the outpouring of grief and sorrow 
as he sat there in the ruins and said, what is it to you that passed by? Don't you care for what I've been put through? But the Babylonians eventually went home, took all the, the bulk of the people captive and leaving just the poor remnant in Jerusalem and Jeremiah among them. And between Gedaliah, Jeremiah and Barak, they had to rule what was left of that shattered land and that shattered city. And then the wicked people murdered Gedaliah. They asked Jeremiah, shall we go to Egypt? And Jeremiah said, no, God does not want you to go to Egypt. Don't do it. But they went anyway. And they dragged Jeremiah and Barak with them. And the very last glimpse we get of Jeremiah is living in Egypt in Jeremiah 44, where he's always still challenging people who will not listen to the word of God. And he dies in Egypt with only the faithful Barak to support him and care for him. And Jeremiah died in Egypt. We don't know where his body was finally interred, but probably in Egypt, because shortly afterwards, Nebuchadnezzar went to Egypt and wiped out the rebellious Jews that were there. You know, that was no inheritance in this life, was it? For a man like Jeremiah, he had nothing at the end of his life. But God hadn't left him without hope for the future. Before the city fell, God gave Jeremiah a promise of an inheritance. And he also then gave him three glorious revelations, which very sadly have been put into our Bible as four chapters. So we often miss the, the glory of the three revelations because we read them chapter by chapter. But there are three revelations and a glorious promise included in those revelations. It's a very unique section of the Bible. In what is regarded as a very gloomy book, the, the prophet of doom he's often called, a book full of condemnation, a book full of warnings, a book full of disasters, a book full of false prophets. We have this little section in chapter 32, 33, 31 and 30. This little section which is, is incredibly different to the rest of the book. We have a, a section of brilliant, bright promises which are so different to the rest of the book of Jeremiah. Now you're probably aware that the book of Jeremiah is completely wrongly shuffled chronologically. In the the program you've got there, you've got a chart at the back of that which will actually give you an opportunity to read the book of Jeremiah in the correct chronological sequence the chapters appear in. And you know, with about 95% surety we can say that those chapters are the correct order you should read them in. It's almost like somebody had the whole book of Jeremiah in 50, 60 pages and dropped the manuscript and when they picked it up it was all reshuffled. But there's reasons why that is so. So you need to actually read the book of Jeremiah in the, in the chronological order sometime and you will be amazed how much information comes to light when you do that. So these chapters are not necessarily in the right places and we need to find out where they actually fit in the story of Jeremiah. Now chapter 30 to 33 need a drastic reshuffle. The order should actually be 32, 33, 30, 31. That's the correct order that they actually chronologically were, were given by God to Jeremiah. And it's very helpful to read them in that way sometimes. So can I make that suggestion? If you do nothing else out of this session, when you go home, sit down and read those four chapters in the order I just suggested, 32, 33, 30, 31. That's the order they were given, and that's the correct order you should read them. Now, there were three revelations in this particular section of Jeremiah. 
Unfortunately, with our translators, they put in chapter divisions to make it easy to find verses. But the chapter divisions, apart from the Psalms and, and apart from the Book of Lamentations, the chapter divisions are not part of, of the original scriptures. They are inserted by translators. So we need to always challenge the chapter divisions because many of them are in the wrong place. Many of them cut a theme in half. So it's always wise to challenge the chapter divisions. And here's a classic case of that. So chapter 30 and 31 are actually one revelation. There should not be a chapter division between those two especially. And the order is wrong as I said. It should be 32, 33, 30 and then 31. Let's just notice that it starts in chapter 32. This is the beginning of the three revelations that Jeremiah got when he was in the court of the prison. Now these three revelations need to be placed between chapter 37 and chapter 38. Chapter 37 ends with Jeremiah in the court of the prison. Chapter 38 opens with Jeremiah in the court of the prison. But in between those two chapters, you've got these four chapters or three revelations of 30 to 33. But the first one of these that comes is in chapter 32. And it gives us the dating. So chapter 32, verse 1 and 2, the word that came in the 10th year of Zedekiah. So we're now... <coughs> In the 10th year of Zedekiah, the city would fall in the 11th year of Zedekiah. So we're not quite at the end of the 18-month of the siege, but we're, we're at a stage where the city has is, is got pestilence, it's got starvation, and you've got Jeremiah still locked up in jail. And the king of Babylon is besieging Jerusalem. He's, his, he's actually conquered all the cities of Judah except for Jerusalem. And you see again in verse 2, Jeremiah's in the court of the prison. That directly relates you to chapter 37, 38, the gap between those two chapters. And the reason he was there was that Zedekiah had got sick of Jeremiah prophesying doom. He kept telling Zedekiah, look, Zedekiah, the Chaldeans are going to take the city. God has decreed you're going to be taken captivity. And you know what Zedekiah was thinking? We know this from Ezekiel 12. But Zedekiah was thinking that I will go down and I'll go through the, the quarries, the underground the quarries of Solomon. And you might have seen an article in, in the Lampstand of the Testimony recently about the quarries of Solomon. But there were caves under Jerusalem that went right out side the city and, and Zedekiah had, had got all his treasures together and he was going to sneak out and make an escape away from the Babylonians and Jeremiah kept saying you can't do that Ezekiel was telling the Jews in Babylon he would not get away with it he would not escape but Zedekiah thought he would and Jeremiah just reminded him here look what it says in verse 4 Zedekiah the king of Judah shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans I know what your plans are you won't get away You'll, you'll have to face him mouth to mouth. You've broken your covenants with him. You've dishonored the name of Yahweh by breaking the covenant you made with the king. And his eyes are going to behold your eyes. You're going to have to look into the eyes of a very angry king of Babylon. And it'll be the second last thing you see. Because the next last thing you're going to see is your own sons killed in front of your own eyes. And then they'll poke out your eyes. And you'll be led to Babylon. It says in chapter 39, you'll go to Babylon to a city that you'll go to and live in but you won't see because you'll be blind so Jeremiah is telling Zedekiah you are the problem you're going to not get away with this escape you're planning you're going to be led to Babylon well the king had had enough of that he shoved him back in the prison didn't want to hear it so while Jeremiah's in the court of the prison for saying those words <clears throat> in verse 6 the word of Yahweh came to me so we now have a, a, a revelation from God while he's in this prison for saying those things to Zedekiah. Just following through how these chapters fit together, if you come to chapter 33, verse 1, 
which flows on from chapter 32, it says, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the second time. So this is the second of the revelations that make up these four chapters. While he was still shut up in the court of the prison. All right, so this is now the second revelation in this, this gap between chapter 37 and 38 chronologically. Then you come to chapter 30. Let's go back to chapter 30 and verse 2, and it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. So this is the third revelation. Thus speaks Yahweh God of Israel, saying, Write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. So what you've got in chapter 32, what you've got in chapter 33... Now write a new scroll. And of course he then gives him the rest of the story through chapters 30, 30 and 31. So it's very important to get that in order. There was a new scroll now to be written. Now this is a different scroll to the one that Barak had written in chapter 36. All the previous preaching of Jeremiah had been written out twice in chapter 36. The first copy being burnt by Jehoiakim. He had to write it out again. So you've now got a second scroll by, Jer by Jeremiah, which would have been written by Barak. But he had to write out these three revelations. So 32, 33, 30, 31 in that order. Actually three revelations in all. Now notice at the end of, of this story, in chapter 31, verse 38. So this is now the end of the whole revelations. It says, Behold the days come, saith Yahweh, that the city shall be built to Yahweh, so we're talking about a city now totally dedicated to God from the tower of Hananiel. Now, that's exactly the same word across the page in chapter 32, verse 6, Hananiel. Justinius will tell you that it's exactly the same Hebrew word. So correct that, again, wrong translation. From the, built from the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. So we're now describing the building of the temple at the end of the prophecy of this revelation, these three revelations. The last one ends up with the Tower of Hanover being included in the temple site. And you can read on the detail about that, about the Valley of Kidron and so on. It's all to do with the building of the temple. So God actually includes in the final word about the future of Israel, the name of Hananiel again. And just keep that in mind as we come back to that. But just finishing off on, on what these chapters are about. Chapter 32 is the certain fate of Zedekiah. Jeremiah's inheritance, evidence and witnesses. And verse 16 to 44, Jeremiah prays to God, well, what's this all about? Why am I buying land that the Babylonians are sitting on? Why am I buying land when we're all going to be carted off into captivity? And, and we have the promise that Israel will come back to their land. Chapter 33 is about the joy and gladness and blessing when Israel and Judah do return to their land. Then it goes on to talk about one day the throne of David will be restored. Which of course it never was after this captivity. Verse 19 to 26 of chapter 33 deals with God's covenant being unshakable. If you can change the ordinance of, of the sun and the moon, says God, then you can change my purpose with Israel. So that's chapter 33. Then you go to chapter 30, and this is the glorious chapter about the return of Israel to the land in the latter days. You know, though they be amongst all the nations, I'll, I will not make a fault in them, I will bring them back to this land, says God. So chapter 30 is all about Return of Israel in the last days. <coughs> Chapter 31 is about then the gathering of all the Jews from all over the world, coming from the north country, back into the land of Israel. And at the end of that, there's a little personal promise to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, at that stage of the vision, I woke up 
and it goes through a symbolic resurrection. I woke up to see the glory all happening around me. There's a little personal message for Jeremiah in chapter 31. The new covenant with restored Israel. I make a new covenant. Take away the hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh to, to believe. It finishes up with God's promise of absolute glory coming to Zion. And when we see those chapters in that correct order, it makes so much sense of the things that Jeremiah prophesies. So I'll leave that with you to think about that and perhaps follow that through. We'll look today particularly at the parable and the prophecy we find in Jeremiah 32, the purchase of the field of Hanamil at Anathoth. Now Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown. He was of the priests of Anathoth. That was the rejected line that had been sent away. But he lived out there about five miles away, but he was a prophet in Jerusalem. And he couldn't get to Anathoth. The one time he tried to get there, they, had, they arrested him and shoved him back in jail. So he couldn't get back to Anathoth. And besides, they had conspired to kill him. But God knew that for his long-suffering servant Jeremiah, the hardest and darkest days were actually about to come. Remember, we're right at the stage where he's in the prison. The next trial he will go through is the miry pit. That was the worst thing in Jeremiah's whole life. It was, a, it was a death sentence. It was a scary thing. And he was probably down there for nearly 24 hours. It was a frightening, horrendous experience. After that, the city would fall. He would be dragged off in chains. He would see the ruin of the city that he loved. He would see the captivity of the people. He'd break his heart in the book of Lamentations. God knew the worst days were coming. And Jeremiah's rotting away in prison. He predicted the moment when Zedekiah would go into captivity, when his own sons would be slain before his eyes. He would go to a city he would never see with his eyes because he'd be blinded. You know, it's a tragic thing about Zedekiah. He always wanted to hear what God said, but he couldn't do it. He always said to Jeremiah privately, what's the word of Yahweh? What's the word of Yahweh? Tell me what the Bible says. Oh, but I couldn't do that. People would laugh at me. And that's the problem with Zedekiah. He's called in the Bible the Twilight Prince. He's always living in half light, half darkness. And that's God's name for him, the Twilight Prince. He wants to know what the Bible says, but oh no, look, it's all too hard. And he ends up in darkness when they poke out his eyes. And his last memory is his sons being killed in front of his eyes. You see, God doesn't like people who are twilight princes, who could have done so much good but did so much evil by vacillating, by saying to Jeremiah privately, tell me what God says, but don't tell them. A terrible man. Now, in the middle of this siege... Jeremiah gets this strange instruction in Jeremiah 32 and verse 6. He says, Yahweh says, look, your uncle's son, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, thine uncle, shall come unto thee, saying, buy my field in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is thine to buy it. Now, it would appear very likely that Shalom had died, and his son, Hanamiel, is trying to offload this to a member of the family. Now, why would you sell the inheritance? Well, the Babylonians are sitting on it. Anathoth has already been conquered. The men of Anathoth have been punished by God, as God said, I will punish the men of Anathoth because of their treachery against Jeremiah. The Babylonians are going to wipe the place out. And here's his Hanamiel in Jerusalem, in the siege, saying, look, we've got to get rid of this block of land. Who will buy it? Well, Jeremiah keeps telling us that God's going to save everybody. Let's go and get Jeremiah to buy it. So... Whatever motive they came with, God said, God predicted this would happen. He's going to come and say, you can buy the field. 
And in verse 8, he turns up and makes the offer to Jeremiah. You can buy the field. You're the person who has the right to buy it. And at the end of verse 8, Jeremiah says that when he came with the offer, I knew God was working on this. I knew God was involved. So I bought the field, weighed out the money, even 17 shekels of silver. Um, that's not a huge price, but when a land has actually got Babylonians sitting on it, that's a big price to pay. Nobody else would have bought it, but he bought it in accordance with God's instructions. Now, think about what happens next. An elaborate ceremony follows at God's instructions. I subscribe the evidence. So what they used to do in those days is they would have two documents. Now, we have all these contracts of sale when we sell properties, but they would have two documents. One was the public record and one was the private record. So you'd make these contracts of sale, and there was one kept in a public place, one private, but there was two copies made, according to the law and custom. So, and they were sealed by, in front of, probably in front of priests or scribes, who would actually seal that this was a contract, very similar to our contract system. And in verse 12, I gave the evidence of the purchase unto Barak, the son of Neriah, the son of Maasai. Now, Barak is the faithful scribe who became Jeremiah's faithful companion through his latter part of his life. So they did all the documents according to what was done. But notice in verse 12, evidence, and at the end of the verse, in the presence of witnesses. So the document had to be signed and witnessed. So there were individual other people came on and they witnessed that document. This transaction had been made and subscribed the book of the purchase before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. So there were lots of witnesses going around this. Now, can I say that you need to colour in, in your Bible, don't do it now, but go through and just colour in this chapter, evidence and witnesses. You know, it comes up again and again from verse 10 onwards, Evidence in verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. You get it in verse 14 twice, three times in verse 14. Verse 16. You get it in verse, uh, right over in verse 44, at the end of the chapter. And witnesses, likewise, goes right through this story. So this whole transaction is actually bound up in the concept of evidence and witnesses. And then Barak is told to do something quite unusual. Look what it says in Jeremiah 32. And I charged, on verse 13, I charged Barak before them, saying, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and the evidence which is open. So the two copies were put together. Put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. Jerusalem Bible has, they may continue for a long time. So this transaction was now to be recorded for a far distant event. It would not happen in Jeremiah's lifetime. So when you go through and you see that this is all about evidence and witnesses, I want you to think, ignoring chapter divisions, which are not part of the original Bible, where in the Bible do you get evidence and witnesses together? Well, when you see it, it's very obvious. Come to Hebrews chapter 11. Now Hebrews 11, as we know, is the is the roll call of the faithful, a, a list of some of the faithful down through the ages who had the spirit of the patriarchs, that they look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And Hebrews 11 starts off with these words. Now faith, which is the theme of this chapter, is the substance. And when you go into the Greek for substance, it has the connotation of title deeds. That origin of that word is to do with title deeds. Faith are the title deeds of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is where you see something and you get a hold of, of an inheritance. 
And then we have a list of people who did just that by faith. And you come to chapter 12 and verse 1, wherefore we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Where do you think that's coming from? Evidence, witnesses. It's telling you that this is all about what God promised to Jeremiah, evidence and witnesses. And these two key words sandwich the commendations of the faithful. They are those who died in faith, not having received the promises in this life, but who look to inherit with Abraham. They look for a city whose builder and maker is God. They are those of whom the world was not worthy. And they are those that God promises will inherit all things. And Hebrews 11 verse 36 is a verse solely dedicated to Jeremiah. Others. And every word in this, this verse 36 of Hebrews 11 is applicable to Jeremiah and not to many of the prophets. Others had trial of cruel mockings. He was put in the stocks. Scourgings, beaten by Pasha. Yeah, but more of bonds and imprisonment. And you know, he went through incredibly difficult imprisonments. When he was in the house of Jonathan, or the prison house of Jonathan the scribe, when he came out, he begged God that he would never have to go back there again. That's how bad it was. Please don't send me back to the house of Jonathan in his prison. It's a shocking place. He went through shocking imprisonments. And that's Jeremiah's verses. You know, you get, verse 37, you get Isaiah being sawn asunder. But that's Jeremiah's verse. Prophets of whom the world was not worthy. And this odd transaction back in, in Jeremiah 32 is God's promise to Jeremiah. Let's go back there to Jeremiah 32. This is when God gave him a sense of his inheritance. Up until this stage of Jeremiah's life, he'd only been promised two things by God. One, that he would be preserved from violent death. He went so close on a number of occasions. His friend Uriah was killed by Jehoiakim. Others around him were killed and taken away. But God had said, Jeremiah, you will have your life for a prey. He said the same to Barak and the same to Ebed-Melech. Jeremiah and his faithful little group were protected from violent death, but they suffered enormously. So that was one promise, that he would not die a violent death. The second promise was that he would be a prophet to the nations. And right through his whole life, that never, ever got fulfilled. So there's a promise that is yet waiting to be fulfilled for Jeremiah, that he would be a prophet to the nations. But what God does now in Jeremiah 32 is to show him a very personal future, a place of honour in the kingdom alongside David's greatest son. Look what happened now in verse 13 and 14. Take the evidence, Barak. So Jeremiah couldn't leave the prison, so Barak can go out of the prison. And he's got a, a sealed <coughs> earthenware jar and he's going to bury it somewhere in Jerusalem that it might be found one day very far in the future. What an incredible thing. Now we learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls that ancient scrolls can be preserved for incredible times if they're in sealed earthenware jars in a dry place. You know, most of those scrolls, some of them were of course shattered by the stones the shepherd boy threw at them, but most of the scrolls were still able to be unrolled and read. So we've learned from that, haven't we, that scrolls can last a long time. Documents can last a long time in sealed earthenware jars. Was a lesson for that generation? 
that God could bring them back to the land, that people would once again live in that land. But especially it was a promise to Jeremiah that he would inherit Anathoth in the kingdom. That's his future inheritance. But he didn't understand what was going on. So, verse 15, God had said to him in verse 15, this is all about Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. They had all lost their inheritances when the Babylonians swept through. God's saying, I'm just telling you by what Jeremiah is doing that you will come back to this land one day. So he sends Barabaric away and Jeremiah sits down and thinks, what was that all about? And he then makes a beautiful prayer from verse 17 to verse 25, a lovely prayer that Jeremiah makes to God. Now again in the, in the program you've got, there's a little page there where you can actually go through the book of Jeremiah and colour in, I recommend you do this, colour in when it's Jeremiah speaking as distinct from God speaking. Because you find that God and Jeremiah have a lot of discussions and a few arguments along the way. And whenever Jeremiah resigns, God says, get back to work. And, and it's great, very helpful to actually colour in the words of Jeremiah. So verse 17 to 25 is, is the words of Jeremiah, his prayer to God. And he makes a prayer to God and he says, you're a God that can do anything. You're in charge of all things. Nothing's too hard for you, but I don't understand. <laughs> you're going to destroy the city and it's right that you destroy the city. I understand why you're destroying the city. But why am I doing this? Verse 25. And there was said unto me, buy the field for money, take witnesses. Why would you do that when the city is given to the hand of the Chaldeans? We're, we're about to be wiped out by the Chaldeans. Why would I be buying a property? So while he's obeyed God and done exactly what God said, he doesn't really get it yet. He's saying, why am I doing this? So God has to respond again. and says, look, this is why. Verse 27, I'm the God of all flesh. There's nothing too hard for me. And he goes on then, God, to explain that I will destroy Jerusalem and I'll destroy it for these reasons. But then you come down to verse... Come down to verse um, 37. After they've been delivered to Babylon, God says, I will gather them out of all countries where I've driven them in my anger and my fury. I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people. I'll be their God. Then it moves on to the eternal rescue of Israel as well. And it's after that that then God gives them chapter 33, 30, 31, which is all about the future of Israel. So you've got this, this glorious revelation, this explanation of Jeremiah, that this is telling you that I will not forget Israel forever. And for you, Jeremiah, there's a particular part of the land of the glorious age to come that you're going to own, and it's Anathoth. So it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? So let's just finish what it says in verse 43 and 44. Fields shall be brought again in this land. They will come back from captivity. They will restore their inheritances. Wherever you say it's desert without man and beast, it's given to the hand of the Chaldeans, they will come back, Jeremiah. Men shall buy fields for money. They shall go through transactions of evidence and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, where Anathoth is, and the places round about Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, the mountains, the valleys, the south. For I will bring them back, Jeremiah. So he's not only reassuring Jeremiah that they are going to come back from captivity, as they did in the days of, of Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah, but goes on to say then there's also now a final return from captivity that God has in store. So it was a wonderful promise that was in this sealing of evidence and witnesses. But Jeremiah never got to inherit Anathoth. He never ever saw the place. He was soon dragged to Egypt and he died in Egypt. He got no chance to see it. But those deeds, brethren and sisters, in that earthenware jar, assure him a place with Abraham and Christ. 
Anathoth, when you look where it is in relation to the temple of the age to come, is in the portion that Ezekiel describes as the portion of the prince. In other words, immediately close to the temple is going to be the inheritance of Anathoth. And that tells you Jeremiah is going to live close to the king of the age to come. And I have a vision of, Jer of Jerusalem after the great earthquake. When the city lies in ruins because of the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus leads Barak and Jeremiah to a spot now only known to God. And says to Barak, just dig over there in the ruins. And you know what will come out, don't you? A sealed earthenware jar with evidence and witnesses that Jeremiah owns Anathoth. Just three miles from Yahweh's house of prayer for all nations. What an ideal position for this hated, persecuted prophet to live. What an opportunity to be the prophet to all the nations that he was promised to be, but never got to be in his lifetime. And I believe that when the mortals come to Zion, and they make a pilgrimage around the land, perhaps lasting for months. One of the highlights will be go to listen to Jeremiah speak. To listen to this prophet who was so mocked and derided when he spoke in the days of his mortality. It will be a highlight to go and listen to Jeremiah speaking about the word of God. No one will ever mock or deride him again. The mortals will soak up every word that drops from his mouth. As it says in Jeremiah 23, God's word will be a hammer that breaks in pieces. And Jeremiah will be there and will be revered and listened to. He will be a prophet to the nations he never got to be. And God has connected many of the faithful to one particular location as the part of the kingdom in the age to come. Their connection in the days of their mortality will, will be cemented in their immortality in the kingdom. Where else would you expect Abraham to be except at Hebron? with his next-door neighbor being Caleb. Isaac at Beersheba. Jacob at Bethel. Joseph at Shechem. Joshua at Timnath, Sirah. Jabez in the Valley of Achor. Samson at Zorah. Jephthah at Mizpah in Gilead. David at Bethlehem with Ruth and Boaz. Jeremiah at Anathoth. And God has linked these people to particular places that will be very significant in the kingdom of God. Daniel was told he was a eunuch. He had no inheritance. Daniel, you'll stand in your appointed lot at the end of days. The thief on the cross, somewhere close to Christ. And as we looked in our first study, our children and grandchildren living on our personal inheritance in Abraham's land. And God promises that to all of us. Let me read you the words of Isaiah 65. I'll go to them in the last study again, but I want to just read them to you. These are the words of Isaiah 65, verse 9. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. And my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. That's Isaiah 65, verse 9. Look how God just keeps repeating, inheritance, inheritance, inheritance. Mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Brethren and sisters, today, we are the earthen vessels that God has chosen. We accept the evidence of the resurrection of Christ. 
the evidence of a divinely inspired word of God. We look at the many witnesses we are compassed about by the characters God has chosen to reveal in the Bible. And God has sealed that evidence and witnesses inside earthen vessels until the day of redemption. And we come this morning to remember the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered even more than Jeremiah. To remember the price of our redemption from sin and the slavery to death. We never forget the value of that sacrifice. Let's also lift up our heads today, look to the city and the day which is to come. And by God's grace, we shall walk in Abraham's land. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could be there to witness the day when Jeremiah and Barak dig up that jar. And Jeremiah is told that you will now be the prophet to the nations you never got to be. The last word will come from our Lord Jesus Christ himself. From Revelation 21, verse 6 and 7. He said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son.